0: As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a...
1: Wayne! You're listening to Lewis Stevens on Epsom Hospital Radio.
2: Epsom Hospital Radio.
3: What's up, everybody? It feels so good to be back. Grab a bottle, take your body bubble... You know that song in it, Al? Crack a bottle, Eminem. Never heard of it? Oh, okay, well, if you've heard of it, you you, you probably have because you guys are cool. Whereas Alex is not cool. Uh, we <laughs> yeah, no, Alex is cool. She's cool. She's a good girl. Uh, right, we're we're starting here. We're we're at the third, maybe fourth Spotify episode of the Why Aren't You Normal episode podcast. If you're catching up and you're watching other things that's going on over here, a lot of live streams happening. Uh, a lot of local businesses getting a platform to say what they want to say, which is really cool for me. And I love that side of it. So if you're listening and you don't belong to the Facebook page or you haven't been on the Wayne website, waynepodcast.com or why aren't you normal Epsom on Facebook and you can go and look at all the live streams. But alternatively, um, I'm, I'm not just a platform for local business. I don't I don't want to solely be a platform for local business because I like doing these podcasts. These are quite uh, informational creative almost and a bit more fun. Um, In fact, this episode is the first ever really historical Epsom episode with author Martin Knight, publisher of many books, one of which being George Best's final autobiography. He's got his own publishing company with another guy called London Books. um, And they essentially focus on basically collecting stories and recounting things that Martin feels otherwise would be forgotten particularly stories like where me and you are from, places like London, Epsom, stories that aren't remembered in the big news. This story is about the Epsom riots, he wrote a, Martin wrote a book on it called We Are Not Manslaughterers and the year 1919, 400 Canadian soldiers based outside the village, riot in the town, end up murdering a policeman in this riot, PC Thomas Green and then a potential murder back and then a complete brush over from churchill and the king in order to keep some peace and syphilis could be to blame it's a hell of a story and i'm just that's all i'm going to give you for now a teaser and if you want to find out more keep listening because it's 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 mad interesting it really is it really is wait 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 Wayne. And also, don't forget, we, we're not just a, a talky-talky podcast. We do other things than talky-talk. We, we do singy-sings as well. We, and listen-listens. There's talky-talk, singy-sings and listen-listens. And one of the ways we do that is, is Wayne Music, which is a platform for local musicians, artists of any kind. And we feature two or three of their songs every episode because it, the podcast is called Why Aren't You Normal? Um, We're all about not normal and we're about just expressions of of loads of different types of normals within the town and and just society as a whole not not looking towards one way to be and what an awesome expression of that then then is music. You can literally do whatever you want with music. Music can achieve all sorts of different things. So we've chosen to feature in different different artists basically. The last three episodes have have featured a particular artist. Um, I'm going to feature this time a bit of a catch up and we're going to feature my favourite song from the three different artists we've got so far so we've got we've got reese crowver who's an artist we've got dj raymond and then we also have l's all from the local area all creating different types of music and they're going to be featuring out through this episode for you to enjoy you can also catch live streams with all of those artists on the wayne website and facebook page just check in www. You don't even have to type in www I don't even know why that exists anymore. WaynePodcast.com. And then the Facebook, Why Aren't You Normal Epsom. Please like it. It really helps. And tell your friends and family that you, there's an Epsom-based podcast and it's really interesting and really great. And, and who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who
0: knows? Who knows? Wayne. No. I just
3: go with a- Wayne. Wayne. So, the question is why does someone like Martin feel like it's necessary to write a book about these riots and remember the fact that p c Thomas Green was murdered in Epsom by Canadians and as, what I gathered from this interview right the reason why he felt so strongly is because officially the first of a policeman murdered in during a riot uh, is in nineteen eighty but it was actually in nineteen nineteen with Thomas Green. So history's been changed. The reason it's been changed is because at the time, if it had came out that there was some beef going on here between Canada and England, that wouldn't have looked good for the whole end of World War type message that was trying to be spread across. That makes sense. That does make sense. I can understand that. But at the same time, PC Thomas Green probably has a grandson who still lives around the area and he's pretty upset that he's not getting remembered. His granddad gave his life. If your granddad or your dad gave their life for a certain cause and it was chosen not to be remembered, you would, you, you've would got to understand you'd probably be quite annoyed about that. So now step back a second and look at the current political situation that's going on in the Western world where you have people annoyed just like i would say thomas green's grandson might be that he's been forgotten there's people all around the western world that are scared that their stories and their versions of events are going to be forgotten because there is a larger picture being painted now the statement they are making is they aren't happy with this and you can't look over And turn your nose down upon people who want to choose to remember what their family have done. This is why people voted for Brexit. Because they were trying to protect what's on this island in their view. And this is why 50 million people voted for Trump. Not all these people can be really evil people. They just have decided they don't want to be forced to forget sacrifices their relatives may have made to protect the piece of land that they are on and this is why people like Martin are choosing to remember the stories from their families from their community look they're going to be feeling a lot of anger and a lot of emotions about things like this being forgotten about However remembering traditions values and history is one thing but reverting back to old unequal societies where racism and sexism might have been rife is where the lines cross and this is where this is where we find ourselves as a society this is this is the battle people are now having remembering the past but also whilst respecting what the future is trying to achieve. Now, how do we do that? We do that by having conversations, having discussions, respecting and listening to one another. And welcome to the Wayne podcast. We're trying our best to keep it Epsom. Um, Let's go with Reese Crowder, feel something for the first song today, and then we'll go into the podcast. (laughs) Ah, sorry, one more thing. Um, at the beginning of this podcast me and Martin have a 15-20 minute chat about his background his upbringing he's a complete Epsom local you know like the back of a book when you get the, the bit about the author afterwards that's what I've done at the end of the episode if you'd like to hear more about Martin what he's done books he's written as I said he actually wrote George Best's final autobiography amongst many other interesting titles football hooliganism is a big thing of his then that's at the end of the podcast and you can find out a bit more information sorry let's go <laughs>
2: the price of living, tied to my traumas, can't kind help of feeling I'm lost mm. Escaping who I am, just for a minute, I need to feel something 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 besides The emptiness And Aching endless uncertainty through something Escaping
3: a second ago that our oh, English and history was something that you studied at school. Um, yeah. So I guess has is, is, is this always been something you're interested in? Because the first question I wanted to ask you to do with the We Are Not Manslaughter's book about the Epsom riots mm. is like, h- how important is it for you as a person, as an author, for history to be like explored, remembered and, and written down?
1: Well, I think it's very important because, you know, what I have seen in my lifetime is that history does get rewritten. You know, and I, I'm trying to think of a, a good example, but it, it, it sort of happens all the time. People get written out of history and, uh, you know, you, you, I watch things on the television. And I think, well, no, that wasn't how it was, you know. And so I, I, think, I think it is important for people to, to document stuff. And <clears throat> with, with, with the Epsom riot book, you know, there was a crying need for someone to actually look into what, what really was all that was about. I mean, it's it, it was the biggest thing probably that's ever happened in Epsom. You know, the, mur- the murder of a policeman in his own police station, which it more or less was, is unheard of. And when um, when uh, uh, PC Blakelock he, he was murdered by a rioting mob on the Broadwater Farm Estate in Tottenham in the 80s, this was a massive, massive news event. It, it was unheard of. And they quite routinely would say the first policeman to be murdered in a riot on the uk soil and i used to think even you know, well, that's not true yeah. you know, yeah. there's another one and so you know it, it was clear that that for some reason poor old sergeant green <coughs> who had you know made the same Ooh. ultimate sacrifice as uh uh blakelock pc blakelock yeah you know, he, he, he's been airbrushed from history and it wasn't that long ago i mean when, when blakelock was killed in the early 80s that was only sixty years after um, Green. Yet no one knows about Green, and there was nothing really about him. And if you go up to his grave on, on in Ashley Road on Epsom Downs, he's got a nice grave, big big old thing. And the inscription reads, "He found death in the path of duty." What's all that about? He found really? death in the path. you know, he he was brutally murdered and in
3: in a, in a riot. Which yeah, uh, which type other people of, have uh, described as it, just not existing? Well, just haven't described well, it.
1: Basically, it, it, it was it was hushed up. You know, yeah. no one no one really. really that,
3: that. The, the hushing up in in the book does that? Do you sort of go into that towards the end, or do you do you sort of begin with like the facts of, of the riot?
1: Well, I, 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 I sort of begin with a, a look, you know, more as what I've just told you about how I sort of got interested in it, yeah. um, and then then I then, then I recreate what happened and then through going through what happened next and next and next and next, you know, sort of bringing some, some perspective to it. And some of the things that I've found out that you know, I think the reader will form his own, op- him or hers own opinion as, as to what really happened.
3: So was it, was it the hushing up that inspired the book or was it, was it no, something no, else?
1: No, no, no. I mean, I didn't even suspect a hushing up at first. I just thought it's weird. You know, why'd no one interested? You know, I felt sorry for him I, th- I think it was a more like him and his family. I thought you know they need to know a bit more, or or you know, yeah, they they they, they need to know what really happened, and maybe they do did, did know, but don't want to say. You know, I just, I just thought there was something not right. Didn't sit right. For me.
3: How does one go about researching for a book like this when a lot of it isn't um, like easy easy to look into? Yeah.
1: Well, one one of the you know one of the the, uh, the the first things I did was go to the National Archive at Kew and get the police files out and what you know what, what, once once I was into them, I was quite uh you know lots more became apparent. Um, also the the newspaper archives, the the New Herald archive, sort of told you know to, I told lots more. I mean, should I should I go through the story and then 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 I can sort of add the perspective to it.
3: Yeah, yeah, that, that was my next question. So if you if you tell us, yeah, from sort of start to finish, what, what, what happened?
1: Okay. Right, well, Sergeant Green lived in Lower Court Road in Epsom. The house is still there. He was the station sergeant at Epsom, had been for a, two or three years, or more than that, I think. Um, and he was due to retire. So he was about 59, I think, or 55, whatever age of reti- police retirement age was then. So he had, he had hardly any time to go. And he had two daughters, um, and they all live quite happily in Lower Court. The two daughters both went to Pound Lane um, at one point, Pound Lane School. And it was the, the First World War had ended, and the British soldiers were coming back home. The ones that had thankfully survived, they were starting to come back to Epsom. Um, but while they'd been away, they'd opened up a convalescent camp called the Woodcock Park. Camp on the site of where the RAC is now. So um, is it, is it Wilber Hatch Lane? Is the entrance down there? Is, is yeah,
3: there? yeah, up by the golf. Yeah. Uh,
1: so they took over the whole site, and it was a, a convalescent hospital for soldiers from Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, basically the Commonwealth, uh, to to convalesce away from the front. So you know they 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 would have been fighting in France, got injured, um, and would come back to Woodcock Park to to recover and get sent back out again, probably. And um, the Canadian soldiers, it was mainly Canadians, there were Australians and New Zealanders, but it was mainly Canadians, had been a feature of the town, you know, since 1914, really, you know, when the war started. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a few incidents, uh, going through the local paper, you know, they got banned from a couple of pubs for fighting and getting drunk and stuff like that, and, you know, there was possibly a, a, a bit of friction, but on the whole, and everyone rubbed along together. Then in, you know, the official account is in 1918 and 19, or by, by June of 1919 when this incident occurred, you know, the war had been over a year, and these Canadian soldiers were still up at that camp and hadn't been repatriated, and they, they were quite angry about it. Um, and then on whatever day it was, June the 13th or something, um, a fight broke out in the riflemen epsom and the rifleman's still there
3: was it called the rifleman at the time the
1: rifleman then yeah and a fight broke out and then there was a couple of police patrolling um and they went in and arrested these two or three canadian soldiers and marched them up the high street so you can the 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 police station in those days was in ashley road where the where you turn into the one-way system on that corner there i think it's a A dentist, not a dentist, people that do feet, what are they called? You know what I mean?
3: uh, Orthopedic. Yeah,
1: that house there, that's an orthopedics house or surgery or whatever, that was the site of the old police station. So they marched them out, frog marched them out of the riflemen, these two or three coppers, and as they went past the various pubs, the Wellington, the Spread Eagle, uh, the Charter, all the pubs are in Epsom, Canadian soldiers came out and formed a bit of a gang basically barracking the police saying leave them alone, let them go and all of that. Anyway, they got them up to the station and um, the inspector um, put them in the cells. But by that time, a a bit of a crowd had gathered outside and the the inspector, I can't think of his name for a minute, but the inspector managed to sort of shoo them away and said, look, go away. Uh, And they sort of quite ominously said, well, we'll be back. And he was very worried about this. And the, 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 the two or three Canadian soldiers were in the cells below below the station. And the station actually doubled up as this inspector's house. So he had his wife and children sleeping up, or they were up, yes, yeah, sleeping upstairs. Wow. Anyway, um, there was about four or five police on duty that night. And they sat in the, in the station. And in the quiet of the night, remember, there were no cars in those days, really. Um, they could hear this sort of drumming and, and a, 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 a bugle being blown and he, he sort of knew this wasn't good news the inspector and he could hear them coming down from the downs into the town so he basically rang up um, and sent messenger boys out to all the off-duty police and they, they came into the station so one of which was sergeant green and um, yeah they came into the station and basically uh, the, 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 the Canadian soldiers, the aggrieved ones that were outside the police station, had gone back to the camp and said, our boys are in the, in the nick down there, you know, they've done nothing wrong, the, the Epsom lads picked on them, blah, 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 and, and they roused the whole lot, really, into going down, and there was three or 400 people, three or 400 frustrated soldiers came down to the town. On the way down, they smashed up the Lattice pub, which was, which was shut, but they, you know, put the windows in and uh, wrecked it a little bit. Did you know the Lattice pub?
3: No, I was just about to ask you, is it still there or is it? It's still there, but it's not
1: a pub now. It's flat, it's on the corner of the um, back of the Epsom, Epsom Hospital when you come round the bend back into Epsom. It's on that corner there of road. Oh, the right, park. Oh, right near
3: the little lake.
1: That's it. Um, yeah. What about what, Canadian
3: soldiers? How, how? I suppose you can't really get any of their accounts for this. Is this all sort of going off hearsay this, this, of the? This, this
1: is all. This is all true. This is all. A ca- you okay. know, a, a contemporary accounts from both sides. Yeah, yeah. You know, because not all the Canadian soldiers indulged in in the, uh, the riot and so on. So yeah, they came through the Rosebery Park out into Ashley Road, and besieged the police station, and they were throwing rocks through those windows, where the those babies were asleep. Um, So uh, the the inspector's wife gathered the children and they got into a sort of cupboard under the stairs, I think, to to, um, avoid the missiles. Um, And they they managed to pull down the fence and pull out the, the spikes of the fence and fought to free the prisoners. And the prisoners were freed. And the police came out. Sergeant Green, in fact, said, look, we've got to we've got to we've got to fight them. You know, we can't let them get away with this sort of thing. And he, he sort of overruled his inspector, who didn't want to go out and fight them. And, and the officers went out and, and confronted the, 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 the mob. They pushed the mob back for a little while, but then when the mob sort of realised how few of them there were, they came back in and there was a, a big man called Alan McMaster who was a blacksmith back in Canada. And he uh, battered Thomas Green with um, uh, a poker, or Not a poker, sorry. Thomas Green had a poker, which he took from his house. No, he battered him with one of the fence posts. And See, a
3: poker and fence post sounds so sort of. I was going to make a comment on how unprepared the police must have been for a situation like this. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, they were. They were. Um, and and anyway, then you know, the Green fell to the floor and was bleeding from his head. And then the crowd saw what they'd done, and and dispersed. So that was that um then uh yeah oh and and, and they, they they the the americans uh, the canadian soldiers threw their their posts and their staves and their sticks into the pond there was two ponds in those days in rosemary park and um they were they were apparently all washing the blood off their hands and off the stones and some of the reports in the morning um in in the local paper said that um both both ponds were red with blood i mean whether that's journalistic yeah, uh, yeah. or whatever but um,
3: it's good but, imagery but yeah
1: because yeah. <laughs> yeah, although green was killed all the other police officers were, were quite badly hurt as well um, so that was that obviously the the, the the town was in shock the following morning uh, as you know word got round that Tom green who people were very fond of um, had been murdered and, would everyone
3: have known everyone back then sort yeah, of? yeah yeah
1: um, I think the population was, uh, was about 20,000. But Ep- at in those days, as, as opposed to eighty odd thousand now. Yeah. So pretty much so, I think. Um, and they certainly would have known him because he was a you know a community policeman, if you like, you know, he sort of knew everyone. Um. So Scotland Yard were called in because of the seriousness of it, and they went up to the camp, and the camp sort of cooperated, and. Basically, they went round and picked, they did, they did a parade and they picked out people that were nursing injuries. So they picked out five or six of these guys and said, right, you know, we, we believe you're responsible. So it was a very random way of doing it. But they did, in fact, pick out McMaster, um, who, who did happen to, you know, it turned out had done it. Uh, they were taken off to Wandsworth Police Station, I think, or Brixton, and they they, they, were put, they were put in jail pending a trial and uh, let's just follow what happened to them first. They were tried very quickly, but they weren't tried for murder. They were found guilty of manslaughter, Um, and they got sentenced to something like nine months, something ridiculous, but they were out within about a month. Basically, the court case, the prison sentence, everything had been done, and they were back in Canada for Christmas, those soldiers. So, although there was a bit of an uproar at the beginning, and the press you know reported on it and there was a huge turnout for his funeral there's pictures in the book of the funeral you know the whole town turned out the whole of the met police were given the day off and they all came in down on the train and it, it was a, ma- a massive event but after oh, yeah, that after that it didn't reappear in the papers again it was it was crushed you know so um anyway so that so that was that uh yeah he, he had his funeral up on the downs It was a very poignant occasion and then on the surface. As I say, you know, no one, no one knew that they didn't really do a prison sentence that those men were sent back. So on the surface, that looks like the story, and if that was the case. You know, why wasn't Sergeant Green given a medal? Why wasn't he on the Metropolitan Police Roll of Honour? It was basically like he disappeared, um, and it's all, he, his family were almost airbrushed out of Epsom because within a year or so of him dying, the two daughters emigrated. So where do you think? Canada. Canada. Which was the most unusual. You know, would you want to go to the homeland of the people that had killed your father? It always, you know, struck me very weird. But um, so, so that's that's the official line. Yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. Uh, okay. And the Canadian soldiers. The reason apparently they did it was they were angry because um, you know they that they it was a year after the war ended and they still hadn't been repatriated.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, let's explore that for a second. So, so what were the soldiers actually even doing based in Epsom, like because well, because
1: it, it was behind the lines, so you know it it was a safe place to recuperate from war.
3: Oh, so they would, so they they would have all, they would have actually been doing. Um, they all served like a... in France. Oh, okay, right. Okay. They, all served, yeah, they all
1: served in the trenches. I don't think there was any exceptions to the. I think I think there was nine of them all that went on trial, and they they'd all served in France. But that that's what it was for, and it and it. I suppose it was for the Commonwealth soldiers because they were all one of a, you know, of a kind and would feel more comfortable together, I suppose. Um, so that, that's that's why they were there.
3: And they're but, all they're all they're all after battling in war, they're probably all battling now at like a level of trauma and, and homesickness.
1: Yeah. yeah, a lot of a lot of them have been in the real state. But Yeah. What I found so then I started like looking into this more and more and that's when I found out about the girls going to Canada. Um and and so on um what i found out by going i got i got a a researcher on the case in canada and he got the the military records of all of the guys that were that were were convicted the eight or nine including mcmaster all of them were suffering with syphilis
3: syphilis say what um we're gonna go for a song now on that on that bombshell i don't know i'm saying bombshell i'm not jeremy clarkson on that eggshell, we are going to go over to the newest Wayne music guest. We played him last week. He's a man called Els. He's got some nice funky, sort of funky, dark, lovely, laid-back tunes for you. This one's called Two Solo Spot. It's a big favourite of mine. And then afterwards, we'll see you back to find out why syphilis was one of the root causes.
2: And most only when you're with me Walk for shore, take our time One more, call you mind Time is see for miles ours. Finding ourselves so we take each other's stops Holding hands, sun goes down Bright horizons, sleeping sounds Blue ocean,
0: no sun lotion Maybe it's the heat, I'm addicted to your potion When you start to drown, cling on to me If you start to drown, cling on to me Grab oh, don't let go Flow with me, wait for the rescue go Life jacket on, take mine cause you're cold Too solo, too solo, too solo Your shows, move away
2: in the same Anxiety shows, feel better when I'm in. Some days, already time, wanna step up Be a better man for you In get cold, you the on
0: Steve. I'm addicted to your potion When you start to drown, cling on to me If you start to drown, cling on to me Grab Grabo, don't let go Flow with me, wait for the rescue boat. Life jacket on, take mine cause you're
2: cold
0: Too solo, too solo, too solo Leo,
2: Leo, not Da Vinci, need an escape Take you with me, paradise, sounds nice Connected under moonlight Tired of sense, not see for mine Finding ourselves and we take each other's stars Holding hands, so we
0: found dark horizons, sleeping sounds. Blue ocean, no sun lotion. Maybe it's the heat, I'm addicted to your potion. When you start to drown, cling on to me. If you start to drown, cling on to me. Grandpa, don't let go. Flow with me, wait for the rescue boat. Life check it won't take mine cause you're cold. Too slow, too slow, too slow.
1: started to look more into the records of the hotel at uh, the hotel of the hospital yeah and, and one of its main things was treating syphilis in soldiers and syphilis in soldiers was a, a massive thing in the first world war it's one that's been brushed under the carpet a bit but um it was a, it was a real problem for the the military authorities the soldiers were using prostitutes behind the lines you know when they had their 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 time away from the trenches and it it was a bit like now with the pandemic it was you know spreading like wildfire there and and can't put a
3: mask on that either
1: no you can't and it and it it, it was a big problem so um basically uh it it was a a syphilitic hospital really and um there was a leader in the times talking about this very problem basically saying you know the reason that they hadn't had hadn't been sent home yet was they were the last in the queue and they were last in the queue because they had broken military orders military orders were you weren't meant to consult with prostitutes yeah um so they that that sort of tells you one thing about why it was they were taking so long to be repatriated they were technically miscreants
3: yeah well a a roundy bunch they were as well rule breakers being kept outside them being let loose in 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 the pubs of epsom to drink and cohort. i did read one in the research to this one piece of an article that said they may well have been trying it on with some of the local women Um,
1: this this is this is what happened next yeah okay i sort of ploughed through the epsom and your herald archive and from 1918 when they first started coming home uh, sorry when the english soldiers first started coming home you keep seeing in the magistrates' court fights between the English soldiers and the Canadian soldiers. And I'm not talking about the, the odd one or two. It was every every week, every weekend. So they're fighting. Well, at one point they were fighting the stable lads, then they were fighting the Exynon uh, population. And uh, there's even one article in the Epsom Herald where the, the, ma- the magistrate says, why, why is this happening? You know, th- these men have just fought side by side in 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 the biggest war ever um why would they fight each other when they when they get home so put it, me putting together the the syphilitic thing and, and and the growing body of evidence of this unrest that was building up that culminated in june i think what happened was the soldiers were coming home the the tommies and in a lot in a lot of cases their wives their girlfriends their sisters possibly even their mums had syphilis, uh, and, and you know, in in some, it's, if you imagine, imagine the quandary you're in, if you're suffering with syphilis, your husband comes home, he, he would, he and he can't understand why you don't want to be with him.
3: Yep. The raunchy Canadians have been let loose on the on the town. Wow. Yeah,
1: and I think this created a cauldron of, anger. of course. Yeah. And, and I think that's what's going on, and that probably lay behind the fight. <laughs> in the rifleman, you know, we're probably an aggrieved Epsom husband's come in and the Canadians in there and it's sent it's blood boiling and he's tight as a fight. Um, that to be fight. so
3: nice. Those Canadians as well. God. Sorry. I thought the Canadians were supposed to be so nice as well.
1: Well, they were also, you know, you can see it from their point of view. They were also men thousands of miles from home. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. None of us know how we would be in, in that situation
3: so justifiably but emotions were high from both camps
1: emotions were really high and, and it was also, it was like a, 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 a bomb because you couldn't really you couldn't say to your mate, guess what happened with my wife while i have been away you know, it was, in those days it was a, you know, a terrible admission, adultery um, and, and, and then having syphilis on top of adultery you know, would have been created a, a you know, something you just couldn't talk about, so I think there was loads and loads of men Epsom men walking around you know, wanting to explode yeah. Um, and, um yeah. and you know that that that's the conclusion I reached, which was behind the ill feeling. Um so so that that was that. But that and also, you know, that reminded me of what I said earlier when we when we were on the live stream, which is you know, when I first left school and I was drinking in the Marquis and we used to drink with this old guy who was a lovely fella, and uh, you know, he he kept sort of tapping his nose and saying, Yeah, well there was more to it, you know. If you think about it, he would say 85 in 1975. What would that make? Make, make him born in 1890-odd uh, or whatever. 95, 1895. 1895. So in 1919, he was in his 20s. So he would have known all of this. You know? And he kept saying to me, yeah, but it was much more to it, you know, it was more of a personal thing and sort of hinted at what I sort of later discovered or conclusions I reached as to why. And by the way, I'm making these allegation but when you read the book there's lots of supporting evidence to what i'm saying
3: yeah 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 i would i would encourage everybody else to go and read up on what you're saying yeah
1: you know um it's not like i've pulled out a theory out of of the air there's a lot of lots of supporting evidence i would Um, never
3: guess that there was some kind of personal vendetta running running sort of between the boys this is this what we're going to go towards yeah
1: yeah that's, that's that's what it was and um on the day of the funeral um Oh yeah, so, so what happened was the Canadian soldiers after the, the riot, the Canadian soldiers were banned from coming into Epsom. They weren't allowed into Epsom because obviously you know, they would have inflamed it even more. So they they were put under orders they mustn't go within a radius of Epsom, so, um, because uh, the locals were, venge you know were, were were swearing revenge, and there was there's a leader article in the Epsom New Herald at the time appealing to epsom men not to reap their own revenge so it's obviously a very real fear Concern, yeah this thing was going to escalate so on the day of the funeral um as i I said all the police came down and it would have been a field day for criminals because all the police were at the funeral
3: i was thinking Uh, that every every met police officer on the way down from london
1: but every met police officer was given permission to attend if they wanted yeah yeah so um if you look at the pictures in the book, they're quite, it's quite phenomenal. It's really like a, a, a royal funeral. I mean, the whole, the whole town turned out and walked up to Ashley Road. It's quite a... Quite well, funny. they
3: say the police are the biggest gang in the world, aren't they? So I guess from one of their own goes, uh, it's, it's, big, it's big news.
1: And in those days, it was you know, unheard of, as I said. Yeah, you know, unheard of, really. Not many police got killed on duty. Um, anyway, so what happened? To save going into Epsom, the Canadians still wanted to go for their drinks. So they used to come out of Woodcock Park, go to Ashtead Railway Station and go up to Wimbledon and places like that in London. And there was a Canadian club up, up near Waterloo, I think. And uh, I think it was a day after the funeral, there was a Canadian soldier called Fred Bruns and he had been up to see a girl at Wimbledon who he'd formed a relationship with and he got the last train back from Wimbledon to Ashtead and he walked from Ashgid Station up to the camp, down near Pleasure Pit Lane and, and round there. And uh, at the top of, is it Landlyvale Road? I'm No, Headley Road. At the top of Headley Road, there's a sort of entrance into the side of the camp, which is what he would have done because he was late, and he would have come through a side entrance, not the main entrance, where the sentry wouldn't have seen him because he was breaking rules. And um, some screaming was heard, uh, by a number of witnesses and in the morning Brunsley's body was found at the bottom of a uh, clay pit Jeez. dead dead yeah. and there was a they hurried an inquest, this happened say on the Friday, they had an inquest on the Saturday and the case was closed, accidental death but again there's a leader in the Everson Your Herald raising the spectre of foul play because there was a knife or a blade wound across his face where it had been and it's brought down from his eyebrow down to his chin. And the the, the local doctor, you know, the community doctor, said he, he believed it was a knife wound. But the camp doctor said, no, 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 it's probably a bit of thorn that he's caught on the way down. So it, again, it looks like it was trying to be hushed up. And my theory there is uh, it, where he turned into the camp, there used to be a pub, which is long gone, but is now a house, and the pub is called the Junipers. And, and it was a private drinking club, really. But It was it was a pub, and, and locals used to go there. I think that some Epsom men got together, knowing these stragglers were coming in from Ashtay Station, and had decided to get their revenge on a Canadian soldier. Jesus.
3: You know, I think so, was... Wow. It's, I can't actually you get did. my head around it. Have you ever seen Hot Fuzz? It seems like some really, some 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 yeah. unbelievable sort of, I just can't get my head around all, all this going on in one town <laughs> back
1: in the 1990s. He, he, Fred Bruns, is buried in the churchyard in the Canadian the war. Canadian Day. is. Yeah, he's in there with the other Canadian soldiers and nearly all of them, you know, their, their, their dates of death are uh, points during... Them. See, these are people that died in that hospital. And they were, Mostly, the bulk of them died between 1915 and 1918 while yeah. the war was going on. And then you've got Fred Bruns on there, died in 1919. So... We- was, there was a, a rushed inquest that was open, closed on a Saturday, um, and there was no real uh, investigation into how it happened. No witnesses, were, you know, very few witnesses were called, and it, it all it all just seemed in decent haste to me, and, and actually the leader writer in the Exemnual Herald at the time felt the same way. Um, so, you know, my belief is that he was killed, or, you know, maybe they bashed him up and didn't mean to kill him, but threw him down the... After cutting his face, threw him down the gully. Anyway, the the key thing there about Bruns, although he was in the Canadian army, he was an American citizen. And he was in Dakota and crossed the border into Canada because the the depression in America was so bad that people were starving, uh, especially in agriculture industries. And some of them joined the Canadian army just to get fed. Um, And that was the case with Bruns. So he was an American citizen. So all of a sudden you've got this massive political situation, which is a policeman's been murdered, the public want justice, the police want justice. Um, at that time as well, the police were going on strike, which is unheard of, but they were going on strike. So relations between the police and the government were really, really strained, and the government had to sort of walk this tight line. And the other thing that was going on was Edward, Prince Edward, who would later became the king, that abdicated. Yeah. Prince Edward had been sent on a tour of the Commonwealth to try and, what's the word, try and repair the frayed bonds of, of the Commonwealth because the Australians and the Canadians particularly had lost so many people in the World War, in the First World War, disproportionate um, to their populations. It was a huge sacrifice they made. There was a big movement back in their own countries to try and get independence from the Empire the british empire
3: were they were they sort of accusing accusing the empire that they were sent as cattle fodder
1: yeah they were were questioning you know why (laughs) yeah even then the the empire and the colonies and that seemed starting to become an outmoded concept you know um so the the british government in their wisdom sent out prince edward to go around shaking hands and 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 to try and repair these frayed bonds and this tour was scheduled to start in 1919 in the middle of 1919 so all of a sudden Lloyd George who was the Prime Minister and Churchill who was the Minister of War um, had this dilemma because there was a lot of pressure to, on to hang these Canadian soldiers uh, who were up for the murder and then the, 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 the King the future King is going to be out there you know shaking hands with the Canadian dignitaries while some of their own men were being hung at home. They couldn't let it happen.
3: So there's some very strange synchronicities going along here, isn't there, all at the same time?
1: Yeah, yeah. So they, they couldn't let this happen and that is why, basically, the, the media was shut down over this. It was just, as I said, after the funeral, you never heard of it again. It was, it was a massive case. Massive, massive case. It's like Peter Sutcliffe being holed up with the Yorkshire River and then there was no more coverage.
3: Yeah.
1: So... The trial the trial wasn't reported on the imprisonment wasn't reported on and certainly the repatriation just a few weeks later wasn't reported on so it, it, it was all about protecting the goodwill of Canada you know uh, keeping the goodwill Canada's goodwill um, so that's that's sort of why the cover the cover-up happened in my, in my opinion and there is supporting evidence of that as well Prince Edward actually sort of touches upon it in his um, memoirs um, which are quoted in the book. So when Bruns got killed, you can imagine, I just thought, oh, my God, this is, you know. So what happened then, that, that again was almost, it didn't even make the national press. It just made, you know, that, that inquest report, which the Etzman your man, you know, picked up on, that he was the only person. Um, so that was really hushed up. And then the other thing that happened, of course, was everyone got home pretty quick after that, you know, and the camp uh, sort of shut down. Um, and I think I think the girls were encouraged to go to Canada. They were they were they were given a new life there, and I bet the Canadian government paid for it. Um, and and it was an offer they couldn't refuse. But they couldn't really have them hanging around Epsom as a constant reminder of that terrible event.
3: Yeah, um, uh, they went, everybody wants to forget. It. What's your in a situation like this? Do 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 you feel that the the blackout, the media blackout, was sort of the best? the best thing to happen just to get on with it? Or do you feel like freedom well, of speech and, and, and stuff should live on through through all of this?
1: Well, the point with the media is interesting, isn't it? Because there are parallels with today where the media are selective in what they report and what we're allowed to know about. And I think that's overreached itself. Um, uh, and you know, the, the, for, an example of that is all of, uh, before the pandemic, so all of 2019, there were riots every weekend in france um the gillette jaunes who are the, uh, the the yellow jackets um yep. working class people on the streets every every weekend uh protesting about the eu and, and various other things and and m- most of the population don't know about that in this country no never- i cycles
3: i cycled to amsterdam um, a couple of christmases back to arrive there on new year's and um maybe every Two hours, I saw a group of 10 yellow jackets uh, taking yeah. signatures um, at like roundabouts and traffic, and nobody was beeping out of frustration. It was nothing but support for the movement. And I was like, "And I was like, why have I not heard of this? It was like in the entirety of the country all the way through the bike ride.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll give you a recent example. Uh, my wife said to me, did you know there's been massive protests in London and Liverpool? This is about two weeks ago. In London and Liverpool today, uh, about the, um, the, the, the uh, lockdown protests. So I said, yeah, she said, how do you know? I saw it oh, on Twitter. I said, how do you know? She said, oh, it's all over Instagram. And we just both went quiet. And she said, why is it not on the news? And, and <laughs> that, those, that, those massive demos, you know, which were big, big numbers, weren't reported. So the point I'm making is this sort of suppression of news, of, of, of the mainstream media deciding what we should know and what we shouldn't know is going on a lot now. In this case, you know, so this sort of shows it was happening back then. But in this case, I think it was done with the best interests at heart. Yeah. They thought that was the right thing to do. It wasn't about sort of creating some political advantage or disadvantage or, or, or whatever. It was, you know, they wanted to protect the relationship with Canada, which was at the time, you know, it still is a legitimate relationship. Um, so they were in a very awkward position uh, trying to negotiate the 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 the, you know, the paths post war when you know obviously feelings were still running high uh, and the world was repairing itself so I, in in the book I don't really accuse or you know give give over the feeling that I think Churchill and Lloyd George did something nefarious that they did do it
3: <laughs> yeah yeah
1: and 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 a sort of postscript there's a few postscripts to the story but the the big one is in 1929 so 10 years after the war adam mcmaster walked into a police station in winnipeg in canada and said 10 years ago i killed a policeman in epsom i've never served a sentence for it i've never been punished and i can't live with myself
3: jesus, jesus.
1: so uh, winnipeg police station uh telegrammed Scotland Yard. Then we've got an element master here who says he killed a Thomas Green in Epsom in 1919, and he didn't do, he didn't, uh you know, didn't, didn't, didn't wasn't punished. And they telegrammed back: this case is closed. We don't want to know.
3: Well, at that point, I
1: want to put my arm around
3: uh, McMaster. Sorry, um, I think the, 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 the volume got up. I'm getting the echo again.
1: I haven't touched it.
3: Oh, okay. Let me try. If I back it, yeah, that that's better. Um, at, at this point, I want to put my arm around McMaster because really, he's a casualty of war, where where murder and violence has become normalised well, a little I bit.
1: Tell, I can tell you a lot more about McMaster, which which you know, although he's a villain of the piece. Yeah, you touched on this earlier. He was very badly injured in the trenches, and he had um, he, he developed epilepsy um and when he went back to canada in 1919 he, he 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 told everyone and was convinced and there may be some truth in this that he was pardoned by the king and i think they may well have been they may well have been it might have been the king's intervention that basically said get them out of prison and get them home yeah. um but the, the interesting thing was he was a miner uh coal miner and in 1924 i think it was so he'd been back four or five years he was a massive man. Apparently, he was about six foot seven. Really, really massive. Uh, the the ceilings collapsed in a mine that they were working in, and with his big shoulders, he managed to sort of stop it completely collapsing, and allowed about fifty men to escape before he did himself. And he was honoured in this. He got some sort of community medal for what he did. So you know, he was a brave man. man.
3: No, and... no wonder all the some ladies let him give it, let him give him syphilis.
1: <laughs> well, I, would, I wouldn't say it was definitely him, and I wouldn't say. They let him, but um, <laughs> in, so that was in nineteen twenty four. Uh, in twenty nine, he went and made this confession, and then in nineteen thirty nine, very sadly, he hung himself.
3: Oh wow! So, so it, they got a bit much for him.
1: Well, whether it was that or other things, but I imagine that played a part in it. And I must tell you this this last little story about it was. Um, um, I was sort of I think the book had come. The book was definitely out. I think I'm just trying to think. It was about to come out, and I was. On my computer, you know when an email comes in, it sort of pops up on your screen, doesn't it? Like, bottom right or whatever, to let you see you've had an email. Yeah. It's, and it, this email came up, it said, email from Alan McMaster, and I shit myself. I
3: thought, Jesus.
1: <laughs> I thought, God, yeah, like he's come back from the dead, he's going to... Anyway, it was his nephew, who was also called Alan McMaster, who is a prominent liberal politician in Nova Scotia, and he basically... Had read the book or heard about the book and and wanted to tell me about it. And and, and he never met Alan, he was born after he committed suicide. But he put me on to another guy called Buddy McMaster, who was in his 80s then. and Buddy was a really famous uh, what they call it, a cord, mouth organ. What's it called when you play harmonica? Yeah, harmonica player. Very famous in Canada, you know, equivalent of I don't know.
3: You've got Bob Dylan doing it, maybe? Yeah,
1: yeah not, obviously not Bob Dylan, but a really big name in Canada. Yeah. And his, his niece, also called McMaster, I can't think of her name now. She's a, she's like a, a folk star out there. Anyway, so he said, Buddy's still alive. Why don't you ring him? He gave me his number. And I rang Buddy, and, and um, Buddy was the one that told me about the mining accident. And he also said that Alan McMaster was an uh, accomplished mouth organist as well. And... He actually, you know, I was actually talking to someone that knew him. And it was really, really a lovely chat we had. And he, he didn't know about the murder. He said he'd never mentioned it. and But he said he did suffer with his mental health greatly from his experiences in the war. And that was obviously one of them. Um, and then finally, a, a couple of years after that, I was contacted by another guy who, who is Adam McMaster's grandson. And we become great friends. <laughs> Yeah, on email, which I was speaking to him the other day.
3: So, um, yeah. So, yeah, oh, it's mad. So, so how often does that happen where where, you, where people reach out to you after writing a book um, and, and you sort of get these great connections?
1: Well, I think that's the only time it's happened in that way. On, on, oh, right. On this. But, I, but there were several with this book. I became friendly with Thomas Green's great-grandchildren who, who live in Canada, obviously. So I've had a lot to do with them over email. Have I met them? I don't think I've met them yet, no. But um, yeah, so that, that book particularly seemed to, you know, stoke a lot of emotions around the world.
3: Yes, so there's me thinking it was going to be more of a Thomas Green story, but it was actually McMaster that seems to have had the, uh, the, the sort of well, that, the that's, more, that's the more interesting our, our, that's life. Well, the
1: way our conversations flow today, but there's so yeah. much more about Thomas Green as well. You know, he was a, he was a real character. And uh, um, there, there's so many different elements to this book. The inspector, whose name I can't remember, uh, it'll come to me in a minute, there was a little aside about him. When he was training, before he got to Epsom, when he was training, they were, they were trained to use guns, pistols. And they were out on um, oh, uh, one of the commons in Epsom, Hampstead Heath or somewhere like in, in London. And he, his gun discharged accidentally and he killed one of his colleagues. And this sort of haunted him for the rest of his life. And when the Canadians were storming Epsom Police Station, there was actually at least one gun in under lock and key in that station, and he chose not to get it out. And I think probably what happened before uh, uh, coloured his opinion there, and made him make the wrong decision. Well, it might have been the right decision because if he'd fired a gun above their heads, it might have made it even worse. You know, who knows?
3: Yeah, yeah. Instead of uh, instead of dispersing, yeah. it might have caused them an even bigger riot.
1: Yeah. His name is Inspector Pawley, P A W L E Y. It's come back to me now. He's okay. buried up at Epsom. They're all they're all buried up at Epsom.
3: What all, all of them that that were involved uh, in the uh, in riot?
1: Yeah, two or three of the police officers are up there. Certainly, uh, Thomas Green and Bruns are there. Pawley's there. There's another guy buried next to Br- uh, Green. I've forgotten his name, uh, who died of cancer after it, and it could well have been the stress of. Can well, you imagine? You imagine the fear. you you're in a little police station like that, and you've got four hundred angry soldiers bent on destruction outside i mean it to me it's a bit like zulu
3: yeah the, you've seen the uh, film zulu you know, where they where they the redcoats stand and shoot as they're yeah, running towards and, them, and don't they,
1: they? these guys were unarmed yeah well, they... outside were unarmed. but you know i think uh, let's say there was 12 of them i'm not sure exactly how many it was without looking it up but you know 12 Ooh. or 15 against 400. i mean it's just um phenomenal really
3: it's 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 insane, sort of in in a strange way there. How like the war was the first sort of way that brought all these countries together like this. Because like you said, the the police just would not have been ready for something like this, you know, for for four hundred. Because uh, I suppose it just did, did riots happen back then in in that sort of level.
1: Well, f- funny enough, there were some other riots with the Canadian soldiers. Um, there, there, there was a place uh, near Guildford called Whitley um and there was a little bit of a no no one got killed but they were they were they were creating uh, uh at the end of the war so there there was a bit of history of it so whitley luton and somewhere else um where they had sort of smashed up the towns and i think that that was genuinely about the frustration i was going to say I,
3: I, it's one of those stories where you sort of empathize with every single every single member of it because you, you're just sort of thinking that these Canadians almost must have been going through some sort of, well, we've been left out to dry sort of feeling and, and well, with nothing but really alcoholism wasn't. and, and, and battle scars and, and whatnot to, to haunt them. There's no surprise yeah. that it ended up, it was just poor management really in a way or, or would you say?
1: Yeah. Well, the, the, the logistics of moving so many men around the world were phenomenal, you know, because they were, they were all over the world, these people. And, um, you know, you having to get people back, and there's only so many ships, and a lot of ships would have been lost in the war. Uh, there was no, no one was flying anywhere, so it was all all, all all of these transportations were being done by ship.
3: And how accurately were, were these, was was all this getting reported on at the time? Because we have touched upon um, sort of misinformation in the media, and I think yeah, that's I think, partly... I, think, I
1: think I think that was reported on, and these, and these other mini riots were reported on. But, but just a... the,
3: the general the general sort of trying to like ke- like move people around the world uh, keeping a tab on the Canadians you know I, I, nowadays I, I I've come from an era where there's almost a level of distrust in the media not the media but just the the sheer amount of it makes you wary and paranoid mm-hmm. um, so when you look back at all all the media like back then, well, the, media, was, was
1: the, media it... then the media then was really newspapers. So, and was it more? And
3: it was it more simple? Because I always imagine when I think of it, well, like back then it was easy because you only had four, four or five major outlets. Yeah. But then it would have been a lot easier for them to cover up because it only came from there. Whereas yeah. nowadays, anybody can write anything and, and put it online. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, have you, have you ever heard of the uh, Bethnal Green Tube disaster? Have Ever heard about that
3: one? Was it a fire? No. Or, well, no. well,
1: it was during the, during the Second World War. Um. People used to shelter in the in the underground stations. So when when an air raid happened, you know if you didn't have your own air raid shelter, which yeah. you know only the middle class probably did, the working class people in London would go down the underground and they would sleep the night down there. And you know, it was a well known thing to do. And at Bethel Green in East London, something happened as they were all rushing down the stairs, or I don't know what went wrong. Someone fell over, or whatever. Anyway, people got trampled and there was a panic. And I don't know how many, but 20 or 30 people or more died. And it was was a disaster. And a lot of people didn't know about that until many years after the Second World War because the media didn't report it. They were told not to by the government because the government didn't want to damage morale at such a crucial time. So again, it's another example of media manipulation, but done for a good cause. So the Bethnal green tube disaster came as a surprise to many people when it started to leak out in the 50s.
3: It's mad how I've never actually ever, because I've always been one of these angry young people that's at the media, but you never really imagine them doing it for a good cause. But I suppose it is just to, just to try and not cause too much well, civil unrest.
1: Yeah, in those days, people people had a lot more respect for government. You know, they might not always agree with them, but they sort of realised that they ran the country. Yeah. So if, if, the, if the Prime Minister rang up the proprietor of the Times or the Daily Mail or whatever it was in those days and said, look, you know, we don't want this out... They, they would they wouldn't argue with
3: it yeah, sure for good Especially reason
1: in a, in, in, a, in a noble cause
3: yeah okay so I mean look, I've this has been one of my favorite interviews I've done but what would like just to summarize so what is your opinion on on media at the moment and and, and someone that's worked obviously amongst it your whole career and, and taking the trick the, tri- the clippings like like mm-hmm. what what state are we in like what what's your sort of commentary um, on it I,
1: I, I'm sort of quite depressed about it to be honest yeah you know, we touched on it earlier about the French thing. That's just an example, but um, we seem to live in a in a in an age where the media is one. You know, there's not really much difference in, in terms of their political stance between between a lot of it. You know, um, is is there a new is there a newspaper or a TV channel that is sceptical about lockdown? Not really. Not really. Um, yeah. I and, mean, and uh,
3: for, for me, you've got the my. If you're going to look down that ring, I mean, LBC would be my recommendation with uh, Nick Ferrari in the mornings. He seems to be the only. I mean, there's, I'm sure there are people out yeah, there look, also look doing it. Yeah, with sorry, his, go the, on, carry the on.
1: follows him. You know, he is an unashamed sort of um, anti-Brexit and anti-everything really. Um, so. Nick Ferrari is, 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 is a bit like an island. You know, most, most of the LBC presenters all share a same world view. I'm not going like to tell
3: you my view on James O'Brien because <laughs> I kind of like him, but we'll, we'll leave that there. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe some people do. But um, what I'm trying yeah. to say is most of the presenters on LBC, and you're right, Nick Ferrari is an exception, have, have the same world view, which is, you know, anti-Trump, anti-this, anti-that. You know, what I'm trying to say is I'm not saying one view is right or wrong. Yeah, well, I find it discomforting that so many have the same view. There's an
3: overrepresentation. People that
1: went out, for those people that went out and marched uh, about the lockdown, you know, saying that it, it, it's, it needs more investigation or against masks because there is clearly evidence that as much evidence that masks work as that they don't work. You yeah. I mean? um, you know, the the media, GMTV, all these. Bits I call, we're calling them a right-wing crowd. Well, you know, when the camera sort of went on them, half of them were little old ladies. It was just mad. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it's that sort of, I don't know, uh, uniformity in the media that, that worries me.
3: Yeah, I, I totally agree with you because I, I always find that even though I may agree with um, some of the viewpoints maybe that you say are being overrepresented, over-represented when somebody... Puts their hand up and disagrees with them. There seems to be almost just mocking and jest to anybody that sort of disagrees with with what the narrative is being pushed at the moment. And I think that's something we need to stamp out. But at the, in in the same breath, there's obviously so much misinformation being spread around, and and, and so many different points of view and, and and articles coming from God knows where that are infiltrating into our society. That it's a bit. It's just yeah, you just don't know to
1: trust. I, I think, you know, one thing that could, could uh, an immediate step, and, and I realise why they're not doing it, I'll talk about that in a minute, but, you know, really, uh, if, you, if you look at Twitter, you know, most of the people on there are anonymous. Yeah. So got, you know, so have, I don't think people should be, alla- you know, should be allowed to say stuff anonymously. But on the other hand, a lot of them are anonymous because it, it, if their employer sees what opinion they might be expressing, they could lose their jobs. So that, that's the sort of sad situation we're in really
3: yeah yeah, yeah. and it's like and, and, what way do we go do you do you just silence everyone and and, and go to one set way of 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 like this is it because then that causes a problem that we spoke uh, about earlier where where there's just one truth that might not even be the truth because things get left undercover like the pc thomas green yeah. story
1: and we have we have a great uh, sort of history in this country of investigative journalism you know it's the sunday times many years ago that exposed the thalidomide scandal um th- th- these are great balances in society and i just think if people are scared to speak out it's it's a, it's a rocky road for us yeah and people are scared we're already scared look you know everyone thinks now before they say anything and um i, I think i think that's sad and, and worrying
3: yeah i i think maybe that the next step then would be to educate people on how to um sort of how they deal with the media and 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 how to sort of look at good sources and 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 statistics and because at the moment i think that that would be the biggest that would be the biggest problem of people just being able to say what they want and and share what they want is that a lot of the time they might not be coming from credible sources
1: Mm. and then again who decides what's a credible source
3: yeah, yeah, exactly. So and this is sort of the merry go round that we found ourselves with the current media yeah. situation. But uh, again, and if, if there were, if there isn't honest reporting, you would have never been able to produce we are not manslaughters because you know it takes well, no, it takes, I mean, it takes journalism insane. like that to be able to dig.
1: And the problem is Lewis, it has changed very rapidly in the last few years. We are not manslaughters what year was that? Probably ten years old now. Yeah. You know, the, the world the world is very different than it was a year ago. And Massively different from what it was ten years ago. That's how quickly <laughs> it's changing.
3: This has been the biggest jump I've, well, I think I've ever experienced, yeah. and, and maybe ever will. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully. But
1: I'm hoping it's a pendulum, and I'm hoping you know it'll swing back, and you know my grandchildren will enjoy the freedoms that I've enjoyed.
3: Yeah, and let's hope when they're looking back at the the life of Martin Life, um, Martin Knight, <laughs> they'll 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 um they'll look your grandchildren will look back at the Why Aren't You Normal Epson podcast and, uh, and 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 well, uh, and yeah, get his view yeah. on
1: things. You never know.
3: <laughs> All right, Martin. Well, um, uh, thank you very much, man. This has actually been, honestly, one of my favorite pieces of, of um, recording I've much. ever done. And I really appreciate your story. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah. Obviously, I couldn't get your book in time for this interview, The We Are Manslaughters, mm-hmm. but I have um, found it on, you can download it on Kindle. Uh, and my yeah. mum, I believe, is getting me one of them for Christmas. So I'll be oh, that'll be one of my first purchases for well, anybody. If any
1: of your listeners need a copy, I have got loads that I'm happy to give away. Okay, well made to post them but um literally the the company that published it went bust up in Newcastle and I bought the stock um for a very, very reasonable price. So I literally am happy to give away until they're gone.
3: Well in, in that case let me let me try and launch the initiative with the episode. You
1: know, I, I can arrange for you know, Joey or someone to give you some to keep you going in if you need more to start, you yeah
3: yeah then I'd love to push forward on that and if anyone is listening on the back of that let me know and, and we'll try and do it okay Martin well thanks very much uh-huh. I'm going to press the stop recording button uh-huh. but we shall, we shall still be in it after this one second okay. Thank you. and there we have it ladies and gentlemen people of Epsom Town that was the Epsom riots now I want us all to have a riot to this tune but in a much more positive way let it all out returning from season episode number one is dj raymond this song's called always sunny in london not very sunny at the moment is it this song get up to it groove to it if you're on a train on a plane well well you won't be on a plane will you but if you're on a train or at home whatever you're doing give the appropriate amount of bodily movements Nodding your head or get up and groove because this is the Epson based podcast DJ Raymond that was the end of the story next up is the life of Martin Knight 15 minutes on his experiences growing up enjoy enjoy but for now let it all out shake it out I want to hear the vibrations from you listening to this from your house from, from my house Epsom The, fan. Yeah. Look, the front cover of it, um, the Chelsea scarf is blue and everything else is in black and white, which echoes obviously the, um, what was it, the film where, where the girl was wearing the red dress?
1: Um, uh, Schindler's List.
3: Schindler's List. Yeah, what, what, what was the message behind, what was the meaning behind, there behind the
1: scarf no, really, being blue? There was none, we're just trying to be clever.
3: I'm sort of thinking like in a in a black and white world. Then the Chelsea sort of uh, (laughs) the Chelsea was the only level of bit of colour, and some people like.
1: I'd like to pretend that was the case, but I think (laughs) it probably wasn't even our idea. The publisher probably did that.
3: Oh really? That's beyond your hand. The
1: cover designer would have done that. Yeah. Well. To
3: make it stand
1: out, I suppose.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Kudos. Kudos to them. But yeah. So uh, so we just obviously had uh, had the little live stream where we briefly touched upon your um, your. Your journey as an author so far, uh, and I guess just before we go into the topic of this podcast, which is the Epsom riots, which was a 1919 event where 400 Canadians stormed Epsom and ended in a local policeman being mm-hmm. killed, um, which you're gonna, which you've wrote a book about called "We Are Not Manslaughterers. Mm-hmm. Um, you've done of lots of other work, which we covered in the live stream, including George Best's final, George Best's final autobiography. Um, amongst this book lot we just mentioned Hulafan, uh, you have your own publishing company with Martin King who co-wrote or wrote Football Factory, is that right?
1: right. John King actually. Ma- Martin oh, King sorry. is a guy with in Hula Fan. With Hulafan. Yeah. John King is separate guy. I just have the yeah. same name. Uh, he wrote the Football Factory.
3: Oh, he wrote the Football Factory, yeah. and that's who you. That's who you. He's my partner. You... He's
1: My partner in London Books. Yeah.
3: Yeah. 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 Okay.
1: Cool. In fact, we've just published. Uh, our book that's just come out for this Christmas is uh, a book called The Seal Club, which features a novella from John King, a novella from Irvine Welsh, and a, a novella from Alan Warner. So the three little novels in one book. That Excellent. After. Yeah.
3: And Irvine Welsh being the author of the chain Spotting series. Yeah. Yeah. So and and the, oh, this sort of working class cultural uh, writings echoes it a lot in your work. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean that's 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 our, you know where we feel comfortable writing because that's where we come from.
3: Yeah, which I think is an awesome, awesome yeah sort of platform you know to be putting out there. Uh, so so what what led you to become an author? Because you said you've only been writing since nineteen ninety eight. So what was you doing before then?
1: Um, well, I, I was brought up around here on on the the, the Estate, the old Lomond Estate, Gibraltar Crescent, Marsh Avenue, D Way. Um, nice. I was born I was born in the bedroom I grew up in. Um left school went went to Ruxley Lane School. I don't know what that's called now. Yule High? Yule something? Is it Yule High? Yeah. Yeah. Um so I, well first of all I went to the school in the village, lovely little school called St Mary's, which was at the bottom of West Street. I had a, had a lovely, still there, is it? Still there, it's flat. So the infant school next door, which I also right. went to, is still and you know, I rode that past out on my bike the other day. So that's still intact. Still running as a school. Next door to that used to be St Mary's boys school we, from 7 till 11 we would go there um and it was a lovely school and uh you know really really great memories of that school then we went on to ruxy lane there's always a mystery uh or you're hired I now no always a mystery why i didn't really go to longmead school because longmead school which is now blenheim uh was across the road from my house So you know, i could have left at two minutes to nine and still got here on time you know uh-huh. but um I, i'm not sure i, I think I don't know. I think my parents maybe wanted me to go there to the other one because it was mixed. I think they thought that might have a good calming influence on me. It was probably the opposite. Um, and Longmead had a bad reputation at the time. But Rux- Ruxley Lane wasn't far behind. So, yeah, anyway, so I went to Ruxley Lane school. Um, I didn't really do much there in terms academically. Um, I left school with three CSEs, as they were then called. So they were like a poor man's O level. Um, and I did art. English and history and I left school in the middle of 74 not knowing you know not having a clear idea no idea what I wanted to do all I knew was what I didn't want to do I didn't want to work in a factory didn't want to work on a building site um, and you know, I didn't want to do anything that was uh, manually taxing so you know I was sitting around doing nothing and then one day my, my dad came in from work and he had the evening news and he had circled a job and it said messenger boy wanted at the Financial Times in London. So he said, you, why don't you apply for that? I said, well, what's a messenger boy? And he said, well, a boy that runs messages, I presume. (laughs) Go and have a look. So I went up there and I got the job um, in Fleet Street, or just off Fleet Street, Cannon Street, when I was 16. Um, And I worked there uh, until I was 28. And I worked my way up from a messenger boy to working in the library. To being a manager in the thing called the information service, um, and you know I was doing okay there, and through a contact I got recruited to go and. I mean, do you want all this? I'm. I'm. i not.
3: Yeah. I'm, no. No. no, yeah, to, it, got, It's I, a good backstory.
1: Okay. I got we uh, uh recruited to set up an information system for a bank in Bahrain in the Middle East, um, and it was you know big money, um. And I took my wife and the three children I had then. Uh, by then, and we went and lived in Bahrain for a year or two. Had um, a lovely, smashing time, and it enabled me to save up a bit of money. And when I got back, um, I had I'd already had this idea about setting up a thing which was called a press cuttings agency. Um, and I said to my wife, you know, look, let's. If I can use this money to try and do this for a year, it hasn't worked by a year, I'll go out and get a proper job again. So I set up uh, with, a, with a couple of partners, um, my first press cuttings agency. I uh, can't, can't think of what it's called for a minute. Um, and uh, a press cuttings agency, I'll quickly tell you what that is. So there was no internet in those days. So if you were Paul McCartney, for instance, you wanted to know what the newspapers were saying about you. So we used to buy every newspaper, every magazine, everything you can think of in the land, in the UK, from the Epsomunial Herald to the Inverness Chronicle. And every time Paul McCartney was mentioned, we'd cut it out, stick it on a bit of paper and send it to his house down in Rye, And he would pay us a pound the cutting. So Paul oh, McCartney
3: so, was... So, so Paul an actual example. He, he a was a real
1: life it. example. He was, he was one of our first clients. Um, and... You know, when he toured, say wings were going then or whatever, he was probably on his own by then. Uh, so in a year he toured, he would get something like 10,000, 12,000 cuttings. So he, you know, he alone would pay us 12 grand a year. And then we spread into, from pop music people, we spread into um, oh, Richard Branson with another early client. We, we we then went into, you know, banks and political parties and so on. And um, Was this yeah. an original idea
3: from you? Too, no, was I, I, I think so. Okay. I, I, I,
1: when I worked at the FT, they ha, they employed a press cutting service yeah. and they were interested in the Financial Times as a organisation. So if the Financial Times were in the paper for laying people off or a Financial Times manager was Nick for drink driving and it was in the Basil and Echo or whatever, they wanted to know that. Yeah. So we employed this press cutting agency to do it and they just couldn't do it. They they, they would say, you know, the, they'd send us stuff that said the Financial Times reported... That ICI's profits were down 10% or whatever. So my job, one of my jobs, was to go through all their cuttings, send back all the irrelevant stuff and claim a credit. And I remember, you know, I used to think, well, why can't they just do it properly? And, and yeah. that was my idea with someone that would do it properly with a bit of thought and a bit of intelligence behind it.
3: And bearing in mind, you wasn't. It's not just a simple case of typing it in uh, and then all the keywords coming up. No, um, we had teams. You, know, you, of you had to individually go through every single yeah, newspaper.
1: We had te- teams of people reading newspapers all day long.
3: It's not a bad job. No, reading newspapers no. all day. Well, I don't know. It could give you a bit of a headache after a while, I but guess. Yeah, with some know. of the news getting printed.
1: You could get fed up with it, but uh, I used to like doing it. Um, yeah. So that was that, and uh, that. Oh, was Yeah, that would be. That would be. Started that up in about um, 88. And then we sold it in 95 for quite a lot of money to a venture capital company. And then when the non-compete clause... Sorry, that's someone the my I'm going this file. When the non-compete clause ended, we were allowed to start up again. And we, and we did that a couple of times and, and, and sold two or three times along the way. Then I finally sold up the last time for... Uh, not, not, um, in 2005, and I've been pretty much sort of semi-retired uh, since then. Um, and I'd started, I, I always wrote sort of at like school, I used to like doing what they used to call in those days composition, which was uh, part of the English, English course, yeah. uh, to keep a diary and things like that. And then in 1999, I think John King, who, who we talked about earlier, sort of encouraged me. I showed him some of the stuff I'd written and he encouraged me to try and form it into a book. And um, then at the same time, I would started writing for the Chelsea fanzine or a Chelsea fanzine, I wrote a few bits for that. And then I was at a party for my mate from around here, Tony Jones, it was his 40th birthday party. And some, this guy, Martin King was there, who was a black cab driver. And someone said to him, or said to me, I can't remember which way round it was. You know, he had he had written some book, uh, some some uh, memories, and put it into a book, which was later became Hudafan. And and someone they put us together, and we started talking. I said, well, why don't you let me see it and see if I can improve it? And we sort of took it from there. And yeah,
3: it, it, and it all, and it all, all co- I, I love the idea that that all the link came from going to a party as well, not just sort of sitting at home waiting no, for it to happen
1: right. <laughs> so, so, so that was that and then you know as I got more, as I sort of wound down in my business career you know I had more time to write and it's what I enjoy doing and, and, it, and it went from there
3: and it's kind it's, of so so cum- in,
1: in the right place at the right time uh, yeah in my life.
3: Uh, as you say you do keep saying it's sort of right place right time but I definitely think with you it seems to be like the mentality of actually just practicing and being good at what And that's it. That's another Tuesday with the Why Aren't You Normal episode podcast. This has been the third episode or fourth episode. Fourth. No, it's been the fourth episode. Go back and listen to some others if you haven't already listened. Uh, There's been great evolution. Thank you if you have stuck around to listen to the full episode. I appreciate it so much. And if you come this far, you must think it's okay. So do me a big favor if you can. It means a lot. Go on to the Facebook page, like it, share it, find this episode, post, share that, tell your friends, Instagram, the website, sign up to the mailing list and I promise I'll keep making Epsom based content that will only be getting better because it is unlimited. There's unlimited resources of interesting aspects of this town that I can play with and the more I do, the better it gets. So have a good week, tune into the live streams. And goodbye.